starring Sean Comer. Hope you're ready, Hollywood, because you're on trial. Good evening, friends. This is your old pal, the mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified, Mr. Mark Rattledge. And what you are about to listen to are two separately recorded podcasts recorded back 2016. One is the case against Man of Steel, which you'll hear first by good friend of the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network and former casual hero, Gavin Napier. Well, then what you'll hear is a podcast recorded separately with myself and Robert Winfrey defending Man of Steel. And this is sort of a precursor to what would eventually become the actual on-trial podcast. It was kind of an experiment that we did, and it mostly came out of the fact that Gavin and I are having an in-chat, ongoing, rather raucous debate over the merits of Man of Steel. So... I invited him to just record his prosecution because I got tired of arguing with him about it. I said, go ahead and just record yourself def- uh, complaining. All of these complaints that I have to p- deal with, with you in chat, put them all on record and I will upload it to my Blog Talk Radio account. And then separately from that, myself and Robert Winfrey will put all of our defense in there and we can settle this once and for all. I don't know how successful we were in that because I'm fairly certain, you know, all these many years later, we're still arguing about this. But nonetheless, I thought this was a fun experiment and it definitely was the inspiration years later for myself and Sean Comer to start the On Trial podcast, which is still going on today. Uh, We just do it less than we used to because I don't record as much as I used to. So here is Gavin in 2016 complaining incessantly or prosecuting, as you will. Man of Steel by Zack Snyder. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Gavin Napier. This is Bunkhouse Stampede Radio and by proxy the Rattlech in Broadcasting Network. I have been invited to, for lack of a better word, prosecute the Man of Steel. The 2013 abomination directed for Warner Brothers, for Legendary Pictures, for DC by Zack Snyder in an attempt to reboot, to remake, to recreate the Superman franchise. And the movie was met with mixed reviews as as far as comic book movies go because the, the Man of Steel was coming on the heels of tremendous success from Marvel. And there was a lot of consternation about the fact that Batman had just wrapped up his trilogy, the fact that Christopher Nolan had just put the icing on the cake for the uh, magnum opus of the Batman film franchise, and Marvel is doing gangbusters business with Iron Man, with Captain America. Uh, Before long, we would see Guardians of the Galaxy on the big screen. We'd have talking raccoons in a tree that only says three words, four if you count the word we later in the movie. Sorry for the spoilers if you haven't seen it yet, but that's your problem. And so now, because of the mixed critical reviews and the slightly disappointing financial take that Man of Steel brought in, although let's be 100% serious here, 
<clears throat> Man of Steel made more money than I would see in 20 lifetimes. That being said, the film industry has a little bit different idea of what is profitable and financially viable than the rest of us do. And because Man of Steel didn't quite meet expectations, there is tremendous financial pressure on Batman v Superman to make a billion dollars or face another reboot and see the continued disarray of the DC cinematic universe as they continue to fall laps and laps behind their counterparts at Marvel. I promised Mark when he asked me to do this that part of the prosecution of the Man of Steel, the part of, of breaking it down and talking about everything that was wrong with it, would not include the characterization of Superman. And I'm going to hold true to that. So if we were in a courtroom right now, the judge would tell you to strike these words from your memory, that these are to have no bearing on your judgment. But I feel like that we would be remiss if we talked about the Man of Steel and we didn't talk about what has become of Superman under DC, not just in the movies, but in the comic books. Superman was created by Siegel and Schuster during the World War II era when, when Hitler was marching across Europe and the United States would later become involved. Superman was created as a symbol of hope, as an inspiration, as an outlet for the stress of a nation. They needed to see a superhero because Hitler was in search of a Superman. He wanted to create a race of supermen, this Aryan nation, blonde hair, blue eyes. And so Siegel and Schuster come up with their own idea of a Superman who has startlingly black hair and a, a chiseled chin and this physique. But most importantly, he stands for truth, justice, and the American way. Superman was an instant success. And through the years, uh, over the last... Uh, 80 years that Superman has been uh, a part of pop culture, he has become to the United States what Hercules is to ancient Greece or uh, Zeus and the gods of Mount Olympus. He is our greatest mythology. He is a holy American creation, W-H-O-L-L-Y, not holy as in religious. He is an American creation that has become a part of the fiber of what American pop culture and American mythology is. And American mythology is something that, that struggles to find its way sometimes because we, we are such a melting pot of different cultures. We are such a, a variety of things that have m been mashed together and created our own successful community out of it. But Superman is something that is entirely ours. Over the last few years... DC has gotten away from what made Superman truly Superman. And anyone that has followed the history of the character will tell you Superman is not Superman because he is the strongest comic book character. He is not Superman because he always wins fights. He's not even Superman because he saves the day. He's Superman because he does what's right, even when it's hard. Because when everyone else loses hope, he still provides a symbol of hope. He, he still offers a symbol of what can be good 
and right in the world. And he inspires those around him to do better, to aspire not to be a Superman who can fly and shoot lasers out of his eyes and pick up mountains and throw them into space. He inspires them to do the right thing, even when it's the hard thing. And and that is the core of what Superman is, that he is someone who by all rights has no connection to our planet, who, who could set himself up as a God among men, but chooses instead to inspire, to protect and, and to make the world better for those around him. DC over the last few years, uh, especially with the advent of the new 52. However, it's worth noting that Superman Earth One by J. Michael Straczynski was the test run for this. Um, DC seemed to think that the Big Blue Boy Scout, as he's been called, had fallen out of favor and that there was no market for him. Or at least that's the lip service that they'll give you. In, in place of the Superman that we've known and loved for 80 years, DC has started to offer a, a new Superman, a, a Superman who is angry and, and tends to lash out more. A Superman who wears a suit of armor, even though he's invulnerable. A Superman who is much less interested in involving himself with the affairs of the human world and much more interested in being Superman. We see in the New 52 very early on, not just a different attitude from Superman that we're used to, but an attitude of almost a bully, uh, of someone who looks for fights, who looks for someone to test him. And again, this, this is not what Superman has ever been. And so the core of the problems with Man of Steel it's not just in Zack Snyder's characterization or Henry Cavill's portrayal, because I think Henry Cavill did as fine a job as he could with what he was given. And uh, of all of the indictments that I can make of this movie, Henry Cavill's not one of them, much like Brandon Routh in Superman Returns. Say what you will about Superman Returns. Brandon Routh played his part perfectly. The core of the problems with The Man of Steel is in fact what DC has done to the character of Superman. You'll have to excuse me if I pause to take a drink from time to time because I am flying solo here this evening. And there's a there's a good chance that this becomes very lengthy the more I talk about the Man of Steel because the more I talk about it, the angrier I get. Because while the Green Lantern is, always has been, and always will be my favorite superhero, to me, the importance of Superman in American pop culture and American mythology supersedes things like favorite comic book character. Because I feel like when you start to alter what Superman has always been, then you're altering one of the key components of American storytelling. And you are starting to change the most important part of American mythology. And those are things that... Maybe I'm overstating this and maybe I'm being melodramatic, but these are things that matter in a culture that when future generations look back, they're going to see the characters that we created, the stories that we told, and it's going to be a reflection on our society. And I, I genuinely, I genuinely hope that when they look back and they see Superman, they see the first 80 years of Superman and understand 
that that's what Superman should be as opposed to the last five years of Superman that we've had. That Superman should be a symbol of hope, not just in lip services they use in the dialogue in, in Man of Steel, but he should inspire others because he does the right thing, not just when it's hard, but especially when it's hard. As opposed to seeing this angsty postmodern five years behind culture, mad at the world, douchebag. Uh, because that's, that's not Superman. So with all that being said, you can take those as my, my opening arguments. You can strike them from the record, if you may, because when dealing with the Man of Steel, the movie has even more problems than just the characterization of the character. Do I believe that how they portray Superman is an issue? I do, but I also believe that that's something outside of Zack Snyder's hands. Because as much as DC wants to tell you that this new Superman is what they believe in and this is what they're pushing, if you look at any of their marketing materials, whether it's birthday cups or coloring books or whatever, you still see the underwear on the outside of the, the costume and, and the cape and the spit curl. He still looks like Superman everywhere except in the movies. So... Take that with a grain of salt. There are a lot of problems with this movie, and it comes a lar in large part from being tone deaf on the part of DC Warner Brothers and on the part of Zack Snyder. Because the very opening scene that you see in Man of Steel portrays the logos of WB, Legendary, and DC Comics in stone. This seems trivial, this seems insignificant, this seems pointless, and why would you even bother to bring it up? But remember, the name of the movie is The Man of Steel. Why would you use stone in the opening credits? It's, it's counterintuitive. You've gone the exact opposite direction. You have gone from, from something Man of Steel, which per portrays this hard, shiny, polished, faster than a speeding bullet, impervious to this very organic feel of stone. And so right off the bat, we see that Zack Snyder has a little bit of tone deafness. Kal-El is born on Krypton and something that looks vaguely like a dewback from the Star Trek or Star Wars universe. I'm sorry, don't, don't find me and lynch me over mixing up my Star Wars, Star Trek reference there. Acknowledges it with a, with a bellow. It's at this point, two minutes into the movie, that you, you have to come to terms with something to understand that you're watching a Zack Snyder movie, which means that everything that you see is going to be washed out in sepia tones. It's going to look like you are looking at a picture taken in the 1930s that's been colorized, but isn't quite normal in terms of color. Zack Snyder enjoys this a great deal, and, and the reason that he enjoys this is because it is the same reason that you see these teenagers take pictures on Instagram or, or Twitter or on their phones, and they put these different filters on them in the place of being genuinely creative or understanding what goes into photography or cinematography. It's Zack Snyder playing at an air of gravitas because everything's washed out. There, there is no hope. There is no joy. There is no light. Every, look how bleak and dark everything is. We get it. Batman was dark and gritty. Batman's supposed to be dark and gritty. Superman is supposed to represent something better.
nobody wants to see a dark, washed-out, grayish, brownish landscape for Superman. And I understand that they're trying to play off the success of Christopher Nolan and the Dark Knight trilogy, but they have to understand, first of all, Zack Snyder's not Christopher Nolan, and these are two separate characters with two entirely different mentalities, two entirely different psyches behind their creation and behind their execution. Krypton in, in every medium, comic book, television, uh, movie beforehand, has been portrayed as a clean, crisp, neo-modern scientific planet. Uh, Zack Snyder makes it look like an alien version of Sin City. Uh, it's dark, it's crumbling, it's crowded, it's busy, it's dirty, and everything has this reddish hue because their sun's going supernova, which would be a perfectly acceptable explanation for Krypton if Earth didn't hold the same color palette as a dying planet. And at about four minutes in, we see General Zod. And General Zod will be the antagonist for the movie. He's, he's the guy that wants to destroy the world. And this is an incredible plot hole in and of itself, which we'll address later. But I want to just pick apart some of the early parts of the movie here in Act 1. And if you have any idea or if you have any doubts about how much I despise this movie, I have six pages of notes in front of me. I, I came prepared to deconstruct this on every possible level. They go for the cheapest for the easiest, for the laziest possible manner of breaking down a villain. They literally turn Zod into alien Hitler as he goes into this monologue about defective bloodlines and who should and should not live. This is, again, the laziest form of building a villain. There are a plethora of villains in the Superman universe, whether it be Zod or Lex Luthor or Brainiac, Parasite, uh, Mongol, Darkseid, um, Metallo, Starro, the Conqueror from another planet, Bizarro. There, there at Doomsday, there are a myriad of villains that could have been used. And Zod's not in and of himself a bad villain, but much much like they've they've gotten things wrong with who and what Superman is at DC, Zack Snyder gets things wrong with Zod because he just turns Zod literally into alien Hitler. Jor-El, we find out, is a badass scientist because Krypton is exploding literally and figuratively, just in case you missed the narrative here. Uh, everyone is, is at each other's throats, and Jor-El the scientist pulls out his gun and goes into battle against Zod and his army. He steals the genetic encoding of the entire planet of Krypton, and he flies away on a dragonfly, which manage, manages to outmaneuver multiple technologically advanced warships. Jor-El picks Earth because he says that Cal will be a god there. Kara, his mother, decides that it would be better if the baby just died with them because that's every mother's instinct, not to preserve the life of your child, but just to make sure that your child dies with you. We begin to see a pattern here in which the characters are written lazily and they're written as if they're retarded. Uh, 
Jor-El puts on his war suit to fight off Kryptonian Hitler, and scientist Jor-El would hold his own in hand-to-hand combat with the lead general of Krypton's armies. He, w- he would manage to hold his own for about a minute and a half, uh, because at the 14-minute mark of the movie, he's dead. He's, he's gutted, he's ran through, he's laying on the floor dead. If you think that's the last that we're going to see of him, though, you're, you're wrong. Because there's an incredible suspension of disbelief required a little bit later in the movie when he returns. We'll talk about that when we get there. Krypton Hitler is in trouble. He, he's sentenced to the Phantom Zone for crimes of uh, treason, essentially. But he promises to find Cal and kill him as revenge against the man that he's already killed. It's an interesting thought process if, you, if you're trying to follow along at home. The motivations of Zod don't make a whole lot of sense, and they're not going to get any better. As they're launched into the Phantom Zone, there's something very important that you need to know about the way that they chose to imprison Zod and his companions. And that is that they are being flown to the Phantom Zone in dildos. Yes, phallic prisons that look like they should have a suction cup attached to them so that you could stick them to the wall of your shower and you or your wife or your girlfriend or, or whoever could pleasure themselves with them. There's no mistaking what, what these were designed to look like. They are big, rubbery, dildo prison ships. The irony is that the dildo prisons will actually save them because Krypton will explode while they're in the Phantom Zone and then they'll be able to come back out and everything will be fine because they can make their own ships out of the Dildo prison ships and then Zod can get about the business of tracking down the last Kryptonian. This is the end of what what I refer to as Act 1. And... It serves as a prologue, and it definitely sets the tone for the movie. Unfortunately, the tone is not set in a good way. The The tone is set in such a way that you are fairly aware that things are going to be pretty stupid, that the narrative is going to be missing some key points that will make it make sense, and interactions between characters aren't always going to make a whole lot of sense. The characterizations that we've seen so far are pretty true to what we did in the movie as well, in that they are not what you expect from this intellectual property. Uh, I mentioned that everything's washed out in sepia tones. If you want to see what the Man of Steel could have looked like, if you want to see what a Superman movie should look like, you can go to YouTube and you can search Video Lab, the truth behind what if Man of Steel was in color, not in washed out sepia tones, not, not what if... What if Zack Snyder got to run this through his old-timey film processing unit? What if the Man of Steel was actually filmed in color? What if we saw the blues and the reds and the yellows on his suit? What if we saw blue skies and green fields? I'll never see a green field because I'm colorblind, but the rest of you would probably enjoy it. Moving into Act 2 at the 20-minute mark, we see a fisherman on Earth, which again is just as bleak as Krypton. We see an Earth... A sea that is stormy, that is tumultuous, and we see a fisherman with a very 
scruffy look to him referred to as Greenhorn over and over. And he's concerned about reports that he's overhearing regarding an oil rig that's exploding. Uh, without a moment's hesitation, he peels off his flannel shirt, he dives in, and he's off to save the day. The <clears throat> scruffy fisherman, after saving the day, the explosion sort of leaves him drained, rattled, what have you, and he's floating in the water as a whale approaches him. And this unconscious fisherman flashes back to seeing and hearing everything as a young boy in school. The world becomes overwhelming. And the natural response to that is to shoot lasers out of his eyes at a doorknob to keep anyone from opening the door. Now, I, I'm not, not sure how you bring out Superboy's powers. I'm not sure how you bring out what Cal is able to do w without having something a little bit hokey and contrived. Clark is nudged by the whale. He wakes up. He wanders into a town and steals some clothes. He thinks about being called Dick Splash and saves a school bus full of his classmates. Again, another flashback scene in, in which uh, a, a young man who would become one of Clark's best friends, Pete Ross, uh, is actually bullying Clark and calling him Dick Splash. And this causes a little bit of turmoil between Clark and his father, Jonathan Kent, played by Kevin Costner. Because Kevin Costner is of the mind that maybe it would have been better if Clark let everyone on the school bus die. That's right. The man that is responsible for setting Clark's moral compass on this earth, for helping form who and what Superman is, for instilling the moral code in Clark Kent that keeps Superman from ascending to self-appointed godhood, tells him, well, you know, maybe it would be better if you just let all of those children die, even though you're, they're your friends and you care about them. It's probably better that you let a school bus full of children drown than take a chance on being noticed. This is counterintuitive to not just everything that Jonathan Kent has ever been characterized as. This is not just counterintuitive to to what I expect from a Superman story. This is counterintuitive to basic human decency. I'm not sure that you could find a situation on the planet where someone possessed of any sanity whatsoever would tell you that maybe it's better if a school bus full of children drowned. Clark sees a ship sailing away. It's his. They're looking for him. They don't know where the greenhorn went. All is well. There's a miraculous rescue uh, at sea. And, and Clark wanders his way into a diner. In this diner, there's a roughneck, a redneck, and he's harassing a waitress. And Clark tells him to stop. The, the, the redneck, who we'll refer to as Seabass in, in honor of Dumb and Dumber, even though Clark is six inches taller than him, is as broad as a doorway, this guy decides that he's going to throw beer on, on Superman. Doesn't know that he's Superman, clearly. And he tries to push him. Now, when he pushes him, he goes flying backwards. He being Seabass, not Superman. And then Clark just walks out. 
Now, the perfect, the rational response to this is that he impales a $60,000 tractor trailer on telephone poles, and we see the, the wires sparking and, and everything when the guy goes out to retrieve his truck, and he seems confused. I'm also confused because Clark managed to uproot several telephone poles and, and apparently snapped several power lines, yet there's no power outage anywhere. It, I'm also wondering exactly how, even with the, the gift of his superpowers, Clark was able to run telephone poles, which, if you've ever seen them, are significantly tall and significantly thick, through a steel tractor trailer multiple times without anyone hearing anything. This is this is insanity. This is... Again, just like turning Zod into alien Hitler, this is the laziest storytelling you could possibly have. After impaling a tractor trailer on telephone poles, Clark wanders off like Bill Bixby. You can play the sad Hulk music at the uh, as he wanders into the distance, and you won't miss a beat. We meet Lois Lane shortly after in Antarctica, and we have to remember one thing about Lois, and that is she's plucky. There's something under the ice, and it's 20,000 years old. And by the way, Lois, you have to pee in a bucket because you're an outsider and the military doesn't want you here. But Lois Lane is going to snoop around and she's going to get her story. These heavy-handed narratives are a thing of beauty because without them, I'm not sure that anyone that actually enjoyed this movie would have been able to enjoy the movie. They need things spelled out to them. They need things to be very plainly and very delicately given to them so that they can understand and follow each character. Had Lois just been tenacious and asked a lot of questions and been a good reporter, they might not have picked she worked for the Daily Planet and she's their star reporter. Lois manages to expertly navigate a narrow ice shelf following Clark into a tunnel where this item that's been underneath the ice for 20,000 years rests. Clark sees a ghost as Lois explores uh, what will become eventually the Fortress of Solitude. Superman saves Lois after she's attacked by one of the security sentries, the the Kryptonian robots there to protect everything that, that belongs to Clark. Um, he looks into her, and, and Dr. Fisherman Clark understands that she's bleeding internally, and he cauterizes the wound with his eye lasers. And all of a sudden... We have removed one of the key components of what Superman has been from his very, very beginning. And that is the dichotomous relationship between Clark Kent and Superman, especially as that relates to Lois. There is no mystery. There is no need to find out. He sees him for who he is as Clark Kent. And he, he, he fixes her internal bleeding so that she doesn't die there. Now, again, this is someone who was raised by a man who advocated letting a bus full of children die. I'm not sure where the moral compass that necessitated saving one person that was trespassing comes from, uh, but maybe Lois's life is more important than a bus full of school children. We see uh, Black Perry White, also known as Lawrence Fishburne, Tell Lois that she can't write about aliens. You just can't do it because, well, Lois, there's no such thing as aliens. And even if there were, how do you think it would make people feel? 
At 44 minutes, we get maybe my favorite moment in the movie. We see a polar bear. And if you've never heard Kevin Smith go on his diatribe uh, about the time that he was approached to sort of write a Man of Steel movie, you need to to that to truly appreciate it because he mentions a polar bear in, in his diatribe and what was expected of him with the polar bear. Uh, so that quick cutaway to a polar bear at the 44 minute and 20 second mark is arguably the high point of the movie for me. Shortly after the polar bear, computer generated Jor-El meets Cal. We we see a, a bit of heavy-handed liberal propaganda about global warming for Krypton's demise, and we see him inherit the suit. It's not made for him lovingly by his mother which adds uh, another emotional layer to Clark and his relationship with humanity and why he wears the suit. Nope, it's just something that he finds on a ship from a culture and a people that he never truly experienced. And he puts it on because why wouldn't you put it on? The symbol means hope. In every iteration of Superman to, to this point, the S on his chest did not stand for hope. It was a representation of the science guild because his father was a scientist. The L, the house of L-E-L, were scientists. And the symbol on Clark's chest represents the science guild. We find out that, as is customary for every version of Superman we've ever seen on screen, he can fly, but he can't land very well. They use terrible, terrible green screen for Clark to tour the planet and everything that he sees, no matter where he's at, no matter if he's over a desert, an ocean, a tundra, a forest, everything is dull and washed out because Zack Snyder hates colors. Lois figures out Superman is, is Clark Kent fairly easily by backtracking every appearance that he's ever made. I'm assuming that in doing this, that she's only researching miraculous events and, and rescues around the globe, and she tracks him down to Smallville, Kansas. We get a flashback to Clark and Jonathan and, and Martha riding along in a truck, and Clark has a angsty teenager, you're not my dad moment. Uh, this is this is important to see Clark and Jonathan fighting because Jonathan's about to die. And Superman is nothing if not by his relationship with his father, right? And that's what we all know and love from Superman is the fact that he's tortured by his relationship with his father who wanted, again, a bus full of children to be dead at the bottom of a river. This is maybe the worst acted scene that I've ever seen in a major motion picture because there's a tornado literally bearing down on Kevin Costner. Clark Kent has the ability to save his father, but Costner just extends his hand and shakes his head no. And it, it's in, in watching it, it's not like Kevin Costner is telling Clark, no, don't reveal yourself to these people. I understand the consequences, and this is how things have to be. This is what the fates have decided. Uh, I'll always be watching down on you, Clark. I love you. No, he just holds his hand out and shakes his head like he's declining a refill on his cup of coffee. Clark is is torn apart because, remember, he just told him, you're not my dad. 
And then he tells Lois, I'll let my father die. The the hack camera work, the hack directing from Zack Snyder continues because just in case you hadn't figured out that everything is bleak right now, Zack Snyder actually zooms in and and, and gives a nice close up shot of a dead butterfly. Unbelievable. Un this is freshman film school stuff. This is this is pretending to be a director. When when the way that you portray tone is to wash everything out in sepia and give us a nice tight picture of a dead butterfly. I'm not sure that you're you're entirely qualified to direct major motion pictures. And just over an hour and two minutes into the movie, we see another alien arrive on Earth. A UFO is apparently visible without the the need for satellite from all parts of America. And Kryptonian Hitler broadcasts to the world that Kal-El has to surrender or Earth dies. So ends Act 2. Again, the narrative here is rife with plot holes from the silent destruction of a tractor trailer to the power miraculously remaining on despite the fact that multiple power lines have been broken to the fact that maybe it's okay for a bus full of kids to die to Jonathan Kent's suicidal tendencies. Everything about this is just wrong. And it's not wrong for Superman. Everything about this is wrong in the sense of telling a story. As Act 3 picks up, it's important to know that this is all Lois's fault and that we need another flashback. Clark was bullied as a kid. People picked on him. And Pete Ross, who, if you'll remember, called him Dick Splash right before he almost drowned. Um, Pete helps him up and pretends that Clark isn't superhuman, even though even though that he literally drug Pete's dying body out of the river. Little things like this aren't a problem in and of themselves. Things like this add up to be big problems. Despite the fact that the Kryptonians worship an entirely different set of gods, have an entirely different set of deities that they follow, that they worship, goes and talks to a priest, and then he goes to the military to chat with Lois. We see the thing that has become very trendy in comic book movies and and in pop culture in general when you're dealing with something that's a familiar intellectual property, and that you have to actually tease the name of the character. Because Lois almost calls him Superman, but she gets cut off. And so the idea that, that Clark Kent actually isn't Superman for this movie, that he is the Man of Steel, that these are that this is something of a distance from Superman is set in motion. Uh, later on, he will be referred to as Superman, but we've set the, the idea in people's heads very subtly that this isn't Superman. This is the Man of Steel. They did this in part by staying away from the wonderful music that that John Williams wrote the Superman theme. They didn't want to draw those connections. They wanted something new. They 
modified the presentation of Clark Kent. They modified the presentation of Jonathan Kent. Martha Kent has become irrelevant in in Clark's past, aside from the fact that it's his adoptive mother, but there's no significance in their relationship. This This is all out of sorts. And it can be traced back, as I've mentioned on on different shows that we've done talking about comic books and comic book movies, to the lawsuit in which DC fought paying royalties to the Siegel and Schuster estates for the creation that that their ancestors or that their uh, grandfathers, great-grandfathers made. Part of DC winning that lawsuit and avoiding paying those royalties meant altering the Superman character. And so in the name of greed, in the name of not not shelling out a few dollars each month to the estates of the men that created the, the, the intellectual property that literally carried the company for decades, we have to see this version of Superman. And uh, at an hour and 13 minutes, we see a, a bit of romance between Clark and Lois as they hold hands, and we get an idea of where this will go in future movies if they manage to survive past Batman v. Superman. And an hour and 14 minutes, Zod arrives. Lois is brave, and, and she's on onto the ship. Clark can't breathe because he's gotten used to Earth's atmosphere. He passes out, and Zod speaks to him in a dream. He monologues his journey so that we know where Zod has been. We we get a picture of him going through barren planets and recovering the terraforming equipment. And he shows Cal his plan in true, cliched, supervillain form. Uh, this, this is very much Skeletor yelling, I'll get you yet, He-Man. Snyder borrows heavily from Terminator 2 as he shows us a playground only to fill it with the reddish glare of of nuclear wasteland from a sun-gone supernova and skulls beneath the feet of Clark Kent. Lois manages to figure out how to use alien technology, and Jor-El knows and trusts Lois, even though he's never met her and even though he died on an exploding planet light years away. Because, 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 I guess because is the the best we're going to do here. Uh, It makes sense that he would be able to recognize his own son, Kal-El. And I understand that there is a certain suspension of disbelief that comes along with any movie, especially comic book movies. But the idea that this this being from another universe that loaded his consciousness into a computer program so that he could communicate with his son and teach him about all that their life and their civilization was would just immediately recognize and trust someone that's running around with Clark, even though she's not with Clark or, or Cal, uh, as Jor-El knows him at the time. It, it requires a much greater suspension of disbelief than even a movie such as Superman or Man of Steel deserves. Jor-El tells Cal that he can save all of them. Spoiler alert. No, he can't. He can't save anywhere near all of them. There's a lot of people that are going to die. He can save Lois, though. And he does save Lois as she falls out of the ship. He puts her back on terra firma. 
And then we get into the disaster porn section of the movie. It begins at an hour and 29 minutes, and it goes on for a while. Clark monologues. He, he's talking to Zod and telling him what he's going to do. Again, this is this is something that you expect to see from the villain. You don't expect to see this from the hero. You don't expect to see this from the guy that's going to save the day. And here's where we see the difference between the direction given from Richard Donner to Christopher Reeve and the direction given from Zack Snyder to Henry Cavill. Because Christopher Reeve went out of his way to make Clark Kent and Superman two different people. He stood different. He spoke differently. He dressed differently. He carried himself differently. Henry Cavill is Henry Cavill, and there's not a whole lot of difference between Clark Kent and Superman because there's no connection with Jonathan and Martha that's ever told him that he has to be different. All he's had is a dad that tells him that that homemade genocide is okay and that it's okay if your dad dies. He gets blasted for it because Zod's smarter than he is. Cal fights like a woman in IHOP. Cal fights a woman in IHOP, and Pete just happens to be there. Um, Pete Ross deserves a better treatment. That's another argument for for another time. Uh, but other Kryptonians are stronger than Cal, despite the fact that Cal has absorbed sunlight for literally his entire lifetime. Uh, again, a little bit of a, a problem there from the the point of storytelling that Zod and the the woman and, and the brute that are with him are stronger than Cal, even though Cal has been absorbing the yellow sunlight much, much longer than they have. Um, the idea is that Kryptonians are, are solar batteries. They, they hold the light from our yellow sun. It, it fills their cells. It makes them stronger. It gives them the ability to do things that we cannot and so it stands to reason that these three who have been traveling throughout the, the barren wastelands of space after being trapped in the Phantom Zone in their dildo spaceships, after living on a dying planet with a red sun, it, it makes absolutely no sense in terms of the story that they would be stronger than Superman. Or, I'm sorry, Kal-El at this point. He's not Superman yet. Um, Detective Stabler, or Chris Merloni, says that Clark isn't the enemy. And he checks, and, and Clark goes to check on his mom. Uh, this is the first indication we have that she's important to him in any way. We then find out in one of the more bizarre storytelling twists that Zack Snyder gives us, Kal-El is literally billions of people as the entire genetic code of Krypton is in the cells of Clark Kent, of Kal-El, of Superman. Uh, we see something very much like the War of the Worlds come down to terraform. And at an hour and 45 minutes, he gets to be Superman. He acknowledges the need to stop the huge machine that's using a gravity well to terraform the planet into new Krypton. Now, here, here's another huge fallacy for the storytelling and for the motivations of, of Krypton Hitler. If Zod had a machine that could turn planet, why didn't they just turn one of any planet that they came across into Krypton. Why 
didn't Clark or Cal say, hey, you know what? Here's an idea. I've got the genetic code for, for all of Krypton. How about I give that to you and you just go to Mars and, and you turn Mars into Krypton. And there's a yellow sun there and you can do Krypton things and we can do Earth things and legitimately nobody has to die. Um, the 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 simplicity with which this could have all been avoided creates a, a problem with the narrative. It would be nice that if at some point Superman attempts to take the fight out of Metropolis, but he doesn't. He, he's content to to ransack the entire city. Um, Lois is on a plane that's bombing aliens with an alien ship. Not entirely sure what got her the clearance to be there other than the fact that she knows Superman. Uh, but for some reason, she's on a military mission that involves uh, blowing up alien spaceships with another alien spaceship. Um, this is all going on while Superman's fighting Zod and trying to take out the, the world terraformer, the world engine. And one of the little things that just annoys me that one of the things that, that grates on me is the need to change everyone and everything away from being a white man to being something else. Now, Lawrence Fishburne is Perry White. Whatever, Lawrence Fishburne's a great actor. Jimmy Olsen's supposed to be Superman's pal, and I guess still can be. Only Jimmy Olsen's an Asian woman now. Um, this, again, this is DC, and this is a bigger problem than Zack Snyder, and this is a bigger problem than this movie. This is just something that's wrong in general. Uh, but Lois falls out of the plane that she never should have been in. Um, she's okay. Detective Stabler, not so much. He he dies a good death, and in his words, um, Superman is, is a little out of it after saving the world. No flashback. Uh, but we do learn that alien technology is somewhat unreliable. Uh, Superman Lois Kiss, and that is the end of Act 3, and we head into the brief 10-minute epilogue here as Zod and Superman uh, create a sequel of disaster porn. And Superman does something that Superman does not do, kills Zod. He he breaks Zod's neck in front of a large number of people that Zod was attempting to kill. And... I understand that Zack Snyder struggled in this movie with storytelling and with finding a way to connect the dots on a narrative and stay true to the decades upon decades of history that this character has. But if there's one thing that has been a constant in every version of Superman, including the newer comic books that portray him as an absolute douchebag, and it is that Superman does not kill. The... The greatest example of this that you can find, and the greatest example of this that that has been put to pen and paper or has been put on film, um, DC's animated division produced Superman versus the Elite. Uh, the comic books are known as What's So Funny About Truth, Justice, and the American Way. And in it, we see a group of heroes that are very much the newer breed of heroes that permeate the comic book industry. 
that it's okay to kill and they're rude and they're brash and they do things their way and they don't respect anybody. And they pick a fight with, with Superman and the world turns on Superman because he's not cool. He's not new. He, he doesn't, he doesn't do things the way that our fast food microwave generation wants them done. And in the end, Superman stays true to his principles because that's what he does. And he wins the day. And that's one of the great lessons about Superman. It's one of the great things that he teaches throughout the stories that have been told by literally dozens of writers over the decades. And it's why he was, he was created is to reinforce the fact that no matter how bad things get, there's always a better way. We go from this moment that is completely counterculture to everything that Superman has ever been to a very lighthearted moment where a satellite falls in the desert and the soldier's panties are wet because she thinks Superman's hot. He flashes back to a day on the farm with Martha and child killer Jonathan pretending to be a hero running around in a red cape and foreshadowing uh, that quite frankly is ham-fisted and the only when you consider that the reason that small children want to wear capes is because of Superman the idea that Superman ran around in a cape when there was no Superman to inspire it again Zack Snyder struggles here Clark joins the Daily Planet and here's our final gaping plot hole. Perry White's star reporter has tracked down Superman and decided or discovered, excuse me, that he comes from a place in Kansas called Smallville and that he's been a drifter for the last 10 years. He has no journalistic experience. Uh, he is very unreliable as he moves from town to town and place to place without warning. The closest thing that we have to work experience for him is working on a fishing boat. And he's spent a long time as an anonymous drifter. And Perry White just decides, yeah, you know what, we'll take a chance on you. You'll, you'll probably make a good reporter. There's a lot of stuff in this movie. There's a lot of stuff in this movie that could be eliminated, that could be changed, that that could be altered. But this is what DC is now. And if you like a dark and gritty Superman, then Man of Steel is okay, I guess. Um, I grew up with a better Superman than Man of Steel gives us. And I grew up with better Superman stories than Zack Snyder gives us. And I grew up with a Superman that's not angsty, that's not bitter, that's not cold. I grew up with a Jonathan Kent that doesn't advocate the death of children. Uh, I grew up with people telling stories that didn't require ham-fisted uh, narratives. And I grew up 
with a Superman that when he pulled open his shirt, when he changed in a phone booth and took off in that blur of red and blue to save the day, you got goosebumps when John Williams' music picked up and and you felt a sense of pride and, and a knot in your stomach of pleasant anticipation to see how he was going to save the day against all odds. All of that is completely absent in Man of Steel. Even in Man of Steel when when Clark tells Lois that on his planet that's not the letter S, that it's a symbol of hope. That may be true. Nothing in this movie offers hope. This movie offers bleakness. This movie offers angst. This movie offers destruction, despair, death, and a misrepresentation of the greatest part of American mythology. There are plot holes abound, large and small. There are issues with the narrative that make the movie almost unintelligible when you realize exactly how little thought went into telling this story this becomes something that's better suited to mystery science theater this this is this is not a good movie and even if this wasn't supposed to be a superman movie if you change out the fact that this is supposed to be Superman and you make it a brand new created superhero character and you keep everything the same, the problems with the movie remain. The problems remain that you still had a character advocate the death of dozens of children and you still have the problem of a washed out landscape and you still have a problem of dildo spaceships and you still have the problem of spelling out exactly what each character is rather than letting them develop organically. You still have the problem of disaster porn, and you you still have the problem of a hero who kills. These These are all things that burden a movie in and of themselves. When you add plot holes and issues with the structure of the film large and small, such as the tractor-trailer incident and a newspaper reporter being on a military plane and arguably the most important mission of of all of mankind's history, um, to the fact that that Superman and Zod didn't even have to fight. He could have just handed over the genetic information and it could have terraformed literally any of hundreds of planets in the solar system in the universe in the galaxy. There's a lot to pick apart about this, and I've spent the better part of an hour picking it apart and and berating it and telling you what the issues are. Um, in the very near future, Mark and, and I'm assuming one of his co-hosts are going to attempt to defend this movie. They're going to tell you that it's not as bad as it seems. It's not as bad as I made it out to be. Don't listen to them. Don't be swayed. Don't don't be drawn away by the fact that they want to like this movie. Because they're going to tell you that the plot holes don't matter. They're going to tell you that the characterizations don't matter. They're going to tell you that the sepia tones and the washed out look that's permeated Zack Snyder's 
film career, they're going to tell you all of those things don't matter. Well, the fact is, if those things don't matter, then this movie doesn't matter. And I wish this movie didn't matter. But it does. Because it's awful. Not only is it awful, they're trying to use it to launch a universe. They're, they're trying to do with this movie what they did with Iron Man on the Marvel side of things. It's not going to work. Even if it's successful, it won't be good. There's a huge difference between successful and good. NSYNC sold a lot of CDs. My name is Gavin Napier. This has been the prosecution of the Man of Steel 2013 by Zack Snyder. All right, enough of that. Hello, folks. My name is Mark Radledge, your mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified. Tonight, we're bringing you a special presentation here on the Radledge and Broadcasting Network. It's not our usual podcast brands, such as Long Road to Ruin or The Metal Hammer of Doom or even a movie review as such. This is something we like to do when a particular issue arises that warrants it. In the past, I and others took to our microphones to defend the Ultimate Warrior against a litany of criticisms regarding his wrestling ability and his drawing power. I've also partnered up with my wife to defend the sitcom The Big Bang Theory when I felt it was being unduly attacked or at least utterly misunderstood. Tonight, Robert Winfrey and I will attempt to defend what many have called completely indefensible, Zack Snyder's Man of Steel. Now, this isn't going to be a movie review. I already did that when the movie came out, and you can go back into the RAB archives to hear Jeff Harris of 401mania.com, and I break it down. This also isn't going to be the kind of movie craft dissection, deconstruction, you've come to expect on the long road to ruin. What we're doing tonight is something entirely different. I'm not going to try and convince anyone that they should like Man of Steel. With all due respect, I don't care if people like the movie or not, and if that's all there was at stake here, I wouldn't be bothering with a podcast about the subject. I'm not even going to try to convince people that from a crack perspective, Man of Steel is a good movie. With a few narrative issues aside, I happen to think it is a good movie, but that's still not worth me spending an hour or so on here trying to explain that to people who have written the thing off. What I am interested in defending is what exactly Man of Steel was trying to accomplish. Man of Steel is a movie in which we are presented with Superman in a modern context. Man of Steel divorced itself from the well-known, well-worn, golden age Superman type that has already been done in the Donner films with Christopher Reeve. While I love those films and still find them entertaining, in the sense that our main character is relatable in 2016, those movies just don't hold up. Snyder and company acknowledge that while in our hearts we love the bumbling Clark Kent versus the heroic and stalwart Superman that is embraced wholeheartedly by the masses, in today's real world, 
it's not likely that character would act the way that he does, nor would the world embrace him so firmly. Man of Steel shows us how Clark would really behave growing up as he did, and moreover, how the world would see him once he is revealed as Superman. That is what's great about Man of Steel. While it is fiction, it is fiction that at least has a baseline of truth, and it makes us think. It makes us feel what it would be like to be Clark, as opposed to showing us, as he had been betrayed, a symbol of untouchable hope shining on a hill. Now, I respect the fact that many people like their perfect golden age symbol of hope just fine and don't want it messed with. I, however, think a grounded, more realistic personage of a child struggling with God powers turning into a man searching for his place in the world is also a worthy and interesting story. It is a story worthy of defense against unyielding and often shrill criticism. Man of Steel asks the important question when thinking about who Superman really is. What if an alien with God powers landed in the Midwestern U.S. right now in the 21st century? How would that affect the world? How would that affect the couple that found him? What would that alien endure growing up here? Man of Steel attempted to answer those questions in a serious and believable way. I happen to think in large part they accomplished exactly what they set out to do and got it mostly correct. Let's dig into some of the questions. You have a child alien raised by Midwestern farmers who starts to develop scary and unexplainable powers. Now there's a few different angles here we have to examine. First, you have to believe as expressed in the movie by Jonathan Kent that if Clark shows off his powers, this will attract the eyes of the government and they'll probably take him away, not to mention scare the daylight out of the locals. What rational explanation can this family offer to anyone who starts asking reasonable questions about any of Clark's powers? Is he an alien? Is he a mutant? How did this happen? These are serious stressors and considerations that Jonathan and Martha Kent have to contend with while trying to raise their son. That's why Jonathan says things like maybe when Clark asks about letting a busload of kids drown. Can any of you say you know how exactly you'd handle this entire situation that has been thrusted upon you? The man is struggling with the idea that at any time his son will be taken away from him or worse. He also knows that Clark is, in fact, an alien, and that probably scares him on some level. It's a scary proposition to know full well that we are, in fact, not alone in the world. So much has been made up of the infamous, maybe you should let a busload of kids drown bit in the movie, but you have to realize that what it all symbolizes. Jonathan was saying to the audience, Clark's entire existence is huge. It's bigger than that group of kids. It's bigger than the Kent family. When he steps out into the light and shows the world who he really is, will the world be ready for it? That was the point of the whole exchange. Kevin Costner, who plays Jonathan Kent, really nailed his performance. The anguish, an internal question that any one of us would be going through under similar circumstances. He's not perfect by any stretch. 
But that's what makes his character in this movie so interesting. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, going solo tonight, for at least for a little while. So, then we have Clark and how he's feeling. The movie, I think, accurately shows how a child with all this power that he can't show the world would act and feel. He would absolutely feel alone. He'd feel frustrated. He might even be frightened of his own self because all his life he's been told that this existence will change the world. Now pile that on top of just the usual machinations of growing up in America. Imagine you have to deal with that on top of all the types of growing pains we've experienced. Being a kid can be hard. Being Clark must have been worse. Man of Steel goes out of its way to capture the essence of that hardship. We see Clark struggling not to be noticed, set against situations where he's helping people despite himself. Think about that. Here's a child with the fate of the world resting on his shoulders, trying desperately not to make a mess of things while just living his life. That's the beauty of Man of Steel. One of the action, once the action of Krypton's imminent destruction ends, we're left with at least, we're, at least until Zod shows up, a character piece about a child struggling with his destiny. In Donner's Superman, we get one sequence of Clark kicking a football in frustration, racing a train, and then nothing. He complains to Pa Kent, who in turn dies of a heart attack. Shortly thereafter, Clark is off to the north to build the Fortress of Solitude, and depending on which version of the movie you're watching, then in a blink of an eye, he's Superman. He has all the confidence of a runway model, and he's off to Metropolis to fight for truth, justice, and the American way. Now, while I do enjoy that on a simple level, I think there's room in this world for a bit of a complex telling of Superman's coming to understand his purpose in the world. Before I close out and bring on my colleague Robert Winfrey for more conversation on these points, uh, let me address the single biggest criticism of Man of Steel that I believe is utterly unfounded. It has been said that in his battle with Zod, he recklessly destroys Metropolis and doesn't save anyone. First. Sticking with the facts of the movie as they are presented, Metropolis is mostly destroyed by Zod's world engine, not by their fight. Now, Superman and Zod do destroy more buildings in their fight, but this is well after the world engine had laid waste to Metropolis. And I'd have to assume that by the time Zod and Superman start smashing things, most of the people have gotten away, gotten away from the battle or are dead already from what happened with the world engine. But this is also neither here nor there. Let's get back to the important thing, the characterization of Superman. So Clark finds the scout ship, right? Meets an impression of his father and learns about his true heritage. He's encouraged to show himself to the world and get some new duds for the journey. And the next thing that happens, he goes back to Kansas. Clark goes home to tell his mother what he's learned and what he wants to do. But unlike his counterpart in the Donner films, before he can get comfortable in the new suit, Zod shows up and demands that he be turned over. 
Now, realistically, put yourself in this man's shoes. For all his life, he's tried to stay in the background, helping people when he could, but mostly just trying not to make a spectacle out of himself. Then for the first time when he's an adult who is already struggling with what his purpose in the world is, is encouraged to finally emerge from the shadows with a defined purpose. That is, use your vast power to help mankind. Poor Clark gets zero time to really get a handle on his newfound purpose before more aliens show up and start threatening the planet. Think about that. Think about it. He's clocked in zero minutes publicly as Superman at this point. Reeves, Superman, saved Lois from several life-threatening accidents and death itself well before Zod showed up in his universe. But Cavill's Superman is literally thrust into a situation he barely understands and then is expected to handle it like he's been a superhero for 10 years. I think that's a bit unfair. Reeves' Superman allowed Metropolis to get trash and for people to get hurt when he fought Zod. Ursa and Nan. That is a fact. But he gets lauded, unlike Cavill, for taking the fight to the Fortress of Solitude once he realized what havoc they had wrought. Well, Cavill's Superman didn't have that option as he has no Fortress of Solitude. But even if he did, the overall point of this is he's a novice. He's a fish out of water thrown into a situation for which he wasn't prepared, and yes, he makes mistakes. He's fallible, imperfect. Superman made errors in judgment in a situation he was ill-prepared for. You see, that's what I find interesting. That's why I didn't freak out when he killed Zod. I realized that the character reacted in a moment when the answer wasn't readily clear to him. I also thought that his spur-of-the-moment decision to kill Zod would affect him going forward. I actually said that in the review that we did. These are great things that I, that I want to see in movies. I can't speak for anyone else, but this is the kind of thing I look for, that I want to see. This is the grist for the mill that I'm looking for. You want characters with struggles and hurdles that are both internal and external. The biggest internal struggle Reeves the Superman ever deals with is whether to give up being Superman, powers and all. The internal struggles Cavill Superman is dealing with are much more engrossing and, frankly, much more believable. Finally, in defense of Man of Steel, let me say the following. In my opinion, we got more than just a comic book movie. We got a character piece that examines the psychology of people dealing with incredible circumstances. While the Golden Age Superman and the Donner movie certainly have their merit in providing entertainment, Man of Steel is a movie that forces you to think about these characters in the world they inhabit. Superman the movie and Superman 2 you watch with your eyes, I believe Man of Steel is meant to be experienced with your mind. So with that said, let me go ahead and bring on my buddy, the VP of Affairs here at the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network, and my co-host for the evening, Mr. Robert Winfrey. How do you do, sir? Yeah, I have no complaints at the moment. Unlike, you know, people who watch movies. <laughs> All right. Um, now, you've, you've got a 
you've got all of that before we came online tonight, but let me, for the sake of uh, our listening audience, any issues with what I said? Anything you want to address further um, before you go into your own, some of your own thoughts? No, nah, not really. I think you got it about right. So what's your beef? Let's, let's, uh, I wanted to, I actually wanted to introduce you this way. So uh, I'll take that opportunity now. Ladies and gentlemen, the Robert Shapiro to my Johnny Cochran, Robert Winfrey, what is your defense of Man Steel? Uh, first of all, shame on you for referencing that. <laughs> Get on with it. I have to preface some of what I'm about to say in that I think this Man of Steel is to me indicative of a larger issue facing moviegoers, critics, and people who like to talk about things like this as a whole. And I, so I'm going to use this movie in particular to frame some of these larger issues. Man of Steel is far from a perfect movie. I mean, far from a perfect movie. There are narrative issues, quite a few of them. There are some set design costume choices that I would have made differently and I wish had been made differently. The, uh, the 3D is terrible. Uh, I feel bad for anyone who saw this movie in 3D. I really do. There are elements where the CGI is spotty. But if you look at a lot of the reviews of this movie that are negative, they very infrequently talk about that. They don't talk about you know, some characterization issues with Zod necessarily or you know, or why the spaceships look silly. They do. They really do. I mean, I don't go to the extent that other people have when looking at them because I don't see it necessarily the same way, but these, the issues that affect the actual craft of the movie are completely and utterly, almost to a T, overlooked and marginalized in favor of what boils down to, where that's not what I wanted. This movie suffers not so much from the errors that Zack Snyder has given it as a director. It suffers exponentially more from failing to be the superficial, borderline soulless, golden age, superfluous, I don't want to say dreck, but the simpleness of Golden Age 1950s G. Willikers that everyone seems to think is the only version of Superman that exists. I accept the fact that the vast majority of the viewing audience is only familiar with that version. I am perfectly okay with the fact that I know more about this in terms of the diversity of the characters, the standalones, the comic properties, I know more about that than the average moviegoer, and I know a great deal less than a lot of people I know. That doesn't change the fact that those things exist and that they can be very interesting. If you look at a lot of the criticism of this movie, you're going to see one phrase repeated frequently in that, oh, it's joyless. It's some, some variation on that theme, on that mentality. And functionally, that is a valid statement. This is not happy-go-lucky, cracking-wise, brightly colored. And I'll 
I'll grant you that you know Zack Snyder's tone for you know, visual palettes is somewhat lacking. That's a that's a valid criticism, and I'll, I'll I have defended Zack Snyder on many occasions, not necessarily about this movie, but about others. But saying that a movie is joyless is not necessarily a criticism unless it is attempting to be joyful and failing. Fight Club is not a, is a joyless movie. Unless you have a sick sense of humor. I do, and I, I don't like that movie anyway, but that's an example. Schindler's List is a relatively joyless and bleak movie. Natural Born American Killers. History X, Requiem for a Dream. I can go on and on. The point there is you don't hear the phrase joyless being hurled as a criticism at movies that are not attempting to be joyful celebrations. The fact that everyone seemed to assume that, oh, it's going to be Superman. And he's going to, you know, save planes and make jokes. And the fact that you went into this movie with all of these preconceived notions does not make the fact that it fails to meet those a valid criticism. This, Superman being joyless is not a valid criticism of the film in a vacuum. The film does not attempt to be joyful. It does not attempt to be a great, brightly colored celebration and oh boy, you know, uh, as an example for, from Superman Returns, which had a lot of things going for it, actually. Uh, that version of Superman, when the love of his life leaves him, does not look like a heartbroken individual. He looks like someone who saw his puppy get kicked. Because it doesn't deal with anything of emotional consequence, including him being a deadbeat dad. It, it gets somewhat overlooked. Because it fits with the tone that you have a that you expect Superman to have, and that's not uh, that's not a valid criticism. A movie fail being something different than you expect it to be does not necessarily make it bad. Man of Steel is not at all what the vast majority of us I'll throw myself in there expected it to be. The problem is, as soon as it wasn't what you all, what most people thought it would be, they threw a screaming hissy fit, for want of a better phrase. They just said, no, I want my Christopher Reeve back. I want it still statistically the safest way to fly. I want all of that. I do, how dare you do anything different with this property? I understand the reaction. I really do. I don't want to come off as condescending here. I, it, your reaction to it makes sense. This is way out of left field, especially if you're expecting something more in line with either Superman Returns or what Richard Donner did with these with, with the property. Unfortunately, a lot of people, and I'll throw myself in here for a couple of reasons, we allowed that first base reaction to be the extent of our thought. And that's, that's not valid criticism. So many of the negative reviews or the negative things said about this movie are not so much, here's where the film failed, so much as, this isn't what I wanted, therefore it's bad. That internal narrative of, I don't like it, therefore it's bad, or conversely, I like it, therefore it is good, is a real problem. It, I, I don't know entirely where it comes from, other than maybe 
a general trend over the last 20 years or so of not necessarily having to support your arguments with anything other than feelings. If you don't like something, that does not that is not an indicator of quality necessarily. I just said, I don't like Fight Club at all. That doesn't make it a bad film. And the reverse is true as well. There are less than good movies that I certainly enjoy. Unfortunately, we seem to have lost that distinction somewhere along the line. And it's a really, really important distinction, especially, especially if your job is to critically analyze film or television or whatever. If your job is critical analysis, separating what you like or what you enjoy or what you expected from looking at something objectively is supposed to go hand in hand with what you do. I mean, look, Man of Steel has plenty of things to criticize about it, legitimately. And for some reason, you manufactured stuff or you got your feelings hurt because it's different than what you expected. I'm sorry, that's not valid criticism. I want to jump in here real quick. Wasn't sure uh, if there's no, any more you wanted to say, but I want to take a look at two things, both from the Marvel universe. One, people loved the Avengers movie. They loved the Avengers movie, and they one of the just and they never and, and to your point about criticism tends to not seem to look at craft anymore, but whether or not someone was thoroughly entertained uh, or the movie met their expectation of some kind. And so with the Avengers, the thing you kept hearing was that it was fun. It was a romp. It was a roller coaster ride. I have banged my head against the wall numerous times trying to tell people the Avengers is kind of a shitty movie because, you know, between the way it was put together, the fact that there isn't much of a plot, or the, the plot makes little to no sense. But yeah, stuff moves fast, and, you know, and the characters say witty stuff, so I guess there's that. And it's funny to transpose the Avengers against Man of Steel because, well, I'm not going to say Man of Steel, as you said before, is from a craft perspective is perfect in any way, shape or form. It's definitely got some narrative flaws. Uh, I thought it was a better put together movie than the Avengers was, but the Avengers gets all the credit for being a great movie because more people enjoyed it. Uh, it, 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 you know, to put it simply, Man of Steel is bad because it is joyless. Avengers is good because it is joyful. Comic book movies should be, you know, should be uh, fun and uplifting and... Brightly uh, colored, witty, and as unrealistic as possible. Cotton candy for the mind. And Man of Steel doesn't do any of that, and therefore it is bad. Um, but the other thing that comes up is... I was wondering if you were going to get to this or not is let, let, let's move away from the movie in and of itself and just look at Superman. Because Superman's an interesting character. Never before in my life have I seen a character who people are very much unwilling to see any other way but than how he was presented in one particular circumstance. Because we've seen multiple iterations of Batman. We've seen the kiddie, sort of campy, silly Adam West. 
which, you know, there's no one screaming on the top of a hill that that's not the real Batman, because I can point to an era of, during the comics code, uh, where that Batman was very much the accepted Batman, and that's what the television show was basing itself on. There's your Frank Miller, gritty, uh, battle-hardened Batman. There's your world's greatest detective Batman. There's, there have been so many different iterations. In just the movies alone, you had your gritty real-world Batman and Christian Bale. You had your more uh, comic book version in uh, the original Batman with Michael Keaton. And, but, no, but nobody gets bent out of shape in, oh, they're not doing Batman the way I would want Batman. Now you try. Now they're trying that with Superman, and people are saying, "No, no, 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 no. Superman is supposed to be a shining light on a hill. That's what he is. That's the way he was always meant to be. And any der- derivation of that isn't Superman. Now you're just trying to remake Batman. And I don't understand that because I'll give you another example. You have the Hulk. Okay. Now most people know the Hulk one way." a savage green brute. But there's been the Great Hulk, was a smaller, wise-cracking, intelligent version of the Hulk. There was the Professor, which was, you know, which basically had Banner's intelligence uh, with the Hulk's strength. There's Doc Green, which was basically the sociopathic uh, intelligent Hulk. So why is it, and I'll bounce this back to you, why is it that in our lexicon of characters, whether it be James Bond, the Hulk, Batman, <coughs> or any number uh, of our uh, American mythological characters, we're willing to experiment and try them in different ways. But when it comes to Superman, everyone goes, oh, for fuck's sake, no. Don't do that. Please. Golden Age Superman only, please. Why do you think that is? I think the problem you run into with that is you have multiple generations of people with this, with functionally the same version of Superman. Now, I'm not sure what led all the individual players to make it that way. It might just be, you know, unhappy coincidence. But whereas, I mean, if you look at Superman from, you know, the 40s or 50s with George Reeves, it's functionally the same Superman that you got with Christopher Reeve, that you got with Brendan Routh, that you've got with Dean Cain. There's no... So what you wind up with is multiple generations of fans with only the singular impression. I mean, yeah, Batman done by Adam West in that series is silly, campy, dated, uh you know, whatever other adjective you want to throw at it. But they repurposed it with Tim Burton's version, which then got muddled down in being too Burton-y, and then they tried to get Joel Schumacher to do it, and it got way too campy again. And But on a larger scale, Batman has been presented in many different ways to large-scale audiences. Whereas it feels like the people who were responsible for Superman's presentation, you know, in the sixties and seventies were heavily influenced by the, you know, black and white television show. And in exchange, everyone who wanted to do Superman in the eighties and nineties was heavily influenced by the Donner version in the, that came out in theaters with Christopher Reeve. 
and there's never been a progression of the character on a large scale. I mean, you know, people who read comics or, you know, follow the animated stuff, we've seen adaptations, we've seen different versions of Superman, we've seen him do other things in different contexts. And I think that, by and large, prepares us on a larger scale to accept a different take on the mythology of Superman. And unfortunately, the vast majority of people either haven't been exposed to it or saw it and went, no, I don't like that. I, I don't. And the other side of that is, you know, Superman as a character is presented so frequently as, you know, the best of us. And unfortunately, yeah, that's a, there's a cultural shift in there that I really don't feel like getting into because it bothers me personally. And that, as I said before, it does not necessarily constitute legitimate criticism. But Superman has just for so many years was portrayed in such a static fashion to such a large number of people that anything deviating from the norm was going to get their backs up, no matter how well it's done. Let me, let me stop you there. Look, I'm not going to tell anybody listening to this that they should go watch Man of Steel uh, based on what we're saying. I, I perfectly well understand that people may, ha- may only accept Superman one way uh, and when presented another way will reject it out of hand. Okay, fine. And that is your right, and it doesn't make you a bad person. <laughs> it, it doesn't, you know, none, none of that. That's perfectly fine. Um, I just don't think you need to then take that to and the, to say I only like Golden Age Superman, and when done a different way, I don't like it, and that's what makes Man of Steel bad. Is my problem? Yeah. If you that's, stop the set with I don't like it. Okay. It, it, you know, if the majority of the criticism out there was, yeah, I didn't like Man of Steel, um, that's not my Superman, and left it at that, I wouldn't be doing this podcast. But as Robert said, the majority of the criticism was, that wasn't Golden Age Superman, and so Man of Steel is bad. Like, that doesn't, that's not logical. No, it's not logical, and it's not accurate. Now, another thing that I'll accept, and this is, now this is up for debate at the very least, but I'll accept, I'll accept the premise of the argument is, um, okay, I see what they're doing with Man of Steel. I see they're trying to give you this complex, psychologically tortured uh, individual, and you know, rightly so. They just did a shit job of it. Okay, that's an argument worth having. You know, I'll debate somebody all day long, you know, and walk away shaking hands over whether or not Zack Snyder was able to truly accomplish that. And if you don't think he did, that's fine. That's, that's a valid argument. Um, I just want to make sure that that was clear because I don't want people to walk, you know, walk away saying, you know, oh, well, you know, you're, you guys are just saying, oh, because you didn't like, uh, you know, angsty. <laughs> you didn't like angsty Superman, therefore you think it's good. No, it's, it's, it's more than that. Um, uh, uh, if I could speak very briefly to the film itself, it, it's not perfect. There's a lot of flaws. There's a lot of issues. Unfortunately, 
those tend to get overlooked and downplayed by and large in the wake of the emotional response. Mm-hmm. But real, as real far quick, as... You, hang on, real quick okay. before you continue. Gavin asked me tonight why we didn't do this as a one-shot with him just debating me and Robert. And I'll tell you the backstory on that real quick. The reason why there are two podcasts instead of one, uh, ours tonight, his tomorrow, uh, his case against Man of Steel, is that Robert and I would say we liked Man of Steel because it gave us an, an interesting, different look at Superman, and there was, there was more mental grist for the mill. And Gavin's response would be, yeah, but sepia tones and Pa Ken told, you know, told Clark it was okay for busloads of kids to die and dildo ships. I'm like, okay, that's not what we're saying, though. That's not, that's not the argument that's being presented. The argument being presented is that they were monkeying around with the psychology of this individual and um, moving away from the, the shining light on a hill. Yeah, but he kills Zod. Okay, now we're not having the same conversation. And that's why I said, you know what, Gavin, you're going to have your own podcast, and you can talk for an hour about sepia tones and killing busloads of kids, and, and he does a great job of it. Okay, tom- tomorrow night at 9 o'clock, please give Gavin's case against Man of Steel a listen. It's a brilliant deconstruction of the movie, and you can all sit around listening to it, uh, you know, sharing the hatred of the craft of the movie. But that's not the argument being presented tonight. I think if we had had a one-on-one, you know, two-on-one or whatever debate with Gavin, we would have wound up agreeing on 80%, give or take, of what was said, and neither of the issues uh, actually being resolved in any way because they're functionally different. We're tackling it from different perspectives. Right. And again, I would encourage everyone else to listen to Gavin's. It's really well done. Uh, it really is. Uh, I agree with a great deal of what he said, actually. Not all of it, but a fair amount. Mm-hmm. Uh, one when of the Jeff things... I, I'm sorry, oh, real quick. When, when Jeff and I reviewed the movie, I talked about a lot of the craft problems. You know, I, talk, I, I spoke at length, if I remember correctly, about why did Zod have to... <laughs> why did Zod feel he needed to create Krypton on Earth? That made no sense. I, uh, no, actually, it made perfect sense. Why it had to be Earth and not any number of planets in the galaxies? No, that made less sense. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's what I was referring to. Why okay. it had to be Sorry, I, I misunderstood your point. Um, you know, I talked about that. I talked about uh, they don't clearly explain why, you know, in the, in the, real quick, in the, in the Donner movies, they clearly explain why Darrell and Lara don't leave. Krypton and why they just send Kalel up in space. Uh, in this one, he makes some cockamamie point about our, t- our fates are tied to Krypton, and I, every reviewer that's heard that has went, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, so I talked about all that already. I don't feel the need to go back into it. <clears throat> it's also, as I keep saying, not a reason for me to defend the movie. The characterization of Superman is the reason I defend this movie. Go ahead. Uh, it's one of the strongest points of this film in general is both Cavill's acting and the way the character is presented. This movie has a... Uh, rewatching it, it became to me very, very apparent which parts of that movie were David Goyer and Zack Snyder and which parts were influenced by Christopher Nolan. 
Christopher Nolan has a, I, I call, I'm phrasing it as a gift, though I imagine it's much more, you know, worked on and conscious than that. But he has a supreme ability in film to take something that is fantastic, fantastical. I mean, bordering on the insane, depending on which film you're talking about. And he's able to take that and place it on such an emotionally relatable level. We as the audience are able to go on that journey. I mean, Inception is an impossible film about breaking into people's minds. Yet, it makes all the sense in the world, given the emotional context of a man trying to get home to his kids, a son wanting to reconcile with his father. The baseline, emotionally, from which he builds. Matthew McConaughey travels to a different galaxy and orbits a black hole, and there's a goes to another planet with waves that are, you know, taller than most buildings. But the emotional core of that character and that journey is such that we all understand it. We can all relate to it on some level. And it, his ability to make things that are beyond the realm of comprehension, emotionally relatable is something that he easily brings to this film uh the scene when in the beginning i mean you know silliness about jor-el and laura staying on a doomed planet aside the scene if you compare the two scenes where you know his superman's parents you know kal's parents send him from the doomed planet from you know the donner film which is a very in that instance that scene is very cold it is very mechanical. It is very sterilized. There's very little genuine emotion in there. And if you compare that with you know, the sequence in Man of Steel, emotionally speaking, they're night and day. And the fact that Man of Steel succeeds where it does is in large part because he took... Uh, Nolan and, you know, everyone involved, Goyer, Cavill, Snyder, to the extent that, you know, he's the director. They took a character who has been presented so frequently as unconfused, unclouded, the ultimate paragon of virtue. And they made him relatable to, you know, the average person. And that is a very disconcerting notion to people who are only ever used to, you know, Superman is perfect and we should all try to be like him. All right. I think we've pretty much covered um, our general defense of Man of Steel. Uh, I mean, you and I have gone now at length about, this is about characterization. This is about presenting a character who's been with us for decades in a new and interesting way that is relatable in a modern context. Um, if you like it, great. If you don't, uh, you know, the, the Donner films are still out there. Um, there's other iterations of Superman um, that are more up your alley, and God bless you, go watch them. Um, but I'll tell you what, I want to say one last thing before we move on to the last part of this podcast, 
And that is, when I heard they were making Man of Steel, when I heard they were making another Superman movie, I yawned. Just, ugh. And it's not that I don't like Superman. I'm just not interested in him as a character. I, I find that the characterizations of Superman throughout the years have been... Um, he's not particularly complex. He, things come too easy for him, and it becomes, it becomes just a, a lot of... The fact that they had to create Doomsday... I think says a lot about the characterization of Superman throughout the years. It was like he was always just too perfect, and so they had to create a big giant tank to kill him to make him at all interesting. And it, you know, and and that that always bothered me. And I was more always more of a Batman fan. I've always been more into the Marvel characters who were fallible from left to right. Now there's not a perfect one amongst them. But Superman, it was always seemed like, look, here's this guy who can do everything, and his biggest problem in life is that Lois is in love with Superman and not Clark Kent. Now, maybe that's an oversimplification. Maybe people who've been reading Superman for years can point to this and that and say, look, he's more interesting here, he's more interesting there. I just didn't see it. So, when I first started seeing trailers for Man of Steel, <coughs> excuse me, and I saw what they were going after, that's when I became interested. When I, you know, when I said, "Oh, we're gonna see the journey of, of a tortured kid with these, you know, with these, with the issues that that eventually make him Superman," and I'm not opposed to him growing into the shining light on a hill. I'm not opposed to him growing into that golden age character. And I think that's the thing people might misunderstand about this. I'm not putting down the Golden Age Superman. I haven't found it interesting, but I'm not opposed to it either. I'm more interested in the journey getting to that. I, you know, I was, I was talking to someone earlier today and I said, the next movie, he should have had more confidence about himself. He should have been more comfortable in the role. And then I would have accepted him channeling Ch uh, Christopher Reeve and being more of that character and let the world then be afraid of him and let that be the story. You know, he doesn't have to be angsty and mopey and everything else, but apparently he is in Batman v Superman from what I understand, which is unfortunate. But I'm more, but I'm more interested in the journey to getting to that end place where he is comfortable and he is that image that everybody wants him to be instead of just getting there. That's, the, that's, that's my issue with the Donner movie is just... It's, you know, there's no journey. He's frustrated one day, his dad dies, he builds the fortress, bam, he's Superman. That's, that's not a journey. That's a hop, skip, and a jump. And then it's just watching him do stuff, which is fun, but it's not interesting. Um, so I'll give you the last word on this, and then we're going we're gonna to steal from the casual heroes and do a list. I think you're right about that. And I think part of the problem is... How do I phrase this? Superman as he becomes is not a terribly interesting character. What I find most interesting about Superman in his, for want of a better phrase, final form is what a commentary, a fundamentally good, honest righteous person is on the rest of society. That's, a, that's an exceptionally interesting story. 
But like you said, getting there is a different story that is just as interesting. And, I mean, again, if you don't like Man of Steel for any number of reasons, legitimate or illegitimate, I'm with Mark, you know, fine. You know, not everyone's going to like everything. You don't necessarily have to justify your opinion as far as I like or I don't like. Sometimes I've had this problem when we've reviewed movies. I know I don't like it. I know that I don't like it for a legitimate reason, but I can't necessarily verbalize it. I may not have the vocabulary or the experience or the point of comparison to explain it. And that's fine and dandy, too. You know, we all, as humans, have different tastes. We like what we like. There's more than enough room for all of us here, provided we stop being stupid about it. (laughs) But my biggest gripe with a lot of the criticism at Man of Steel has been, and I mentioned this before, I don't find the vast majority of it to be valid criticism. I was going to say, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Fury Road. I thought the movie, I thought the movie was stupid. I thought it was a big car chase in the desert. It went nowhere. It's okay that you don't get it. (laughs) However, objectively speaking, there's nothing really wrong with the movie. It's made exceptionally well. Um, it It does work on a number of levels. And if I'm sitting here, you know, and forced to tell you what those levels are, I can do it but I'm not interested in the movie. I just don't care enough. I didn't care about any of the characters. I didn't care what was going on after a while, and I just wanted it to end. And I imagine that's how a lot of people feel about Man of Steel. You know, they, they, they're not into what's happening, and they just want it to be over. And they don't want to have to see it again. And that's fine. But stop saying it's a bad movie, okay? That, that alone doesn't make it a bad movie. Yeah, I, it's one of those other things where anytime someone tries to tell me that, you know, Zoolander is great, I wind up saying to them, you know, you know, what's your evidence? I don't like it. You know, me personally, I don't like Zoolander. I can tell you exactly why I don't like Zoolander. I hate that kind of comedy. So I don't find it amusing. I don't find it interesting. It's not engaging to me. It makes me want to claw my eyeballs out. Only a fraction of that is a legitimately valid criticism, but people have become so accustomed to not supporting their arguments with anything other than I like it or emotion that we have almost culturally lost touch with how to objectively view things. And Man of Steel suffers predominantly, I think, from that. It's a bunch of a lot of the negative reviews, a lot of the criticism is not refined. It is not objective and it's frankly inaccurate. And that's my biggest gripe with it. It's not that it's a great movie and how dare you, you're all a bunch of idiots with your heads in the sand. I'm not, I'm not like the one guy who saw 2001, a space odyssey and is standing up saying, this is great. And all the critics are saying you're an idiot. I'm more than prepared to seriously, the critical response to that film was largely negative. I was, actually the, thinking about what you, I was actually thinking about what you said about Toy Story 3. Huh, which one? <laughs> the one? The one critic who didn't like it. Oh, God. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. All right. Um, but, and again, there are leg- if you don't like Man of Steel, that's fine. My 
deep-seated request to humanity at large at this point in time, stop utilizing your emotions as objective justification. Stop it. They, your emotions are fine. They are good. Having a healthy relationship with them is good. Knowing what qualifies as your emotion and preference versus what qualifies as quality and fact is, a is something that we seem to have lost, and I'm begging you all to try and find it, because we're all going to be a lot better off when we finally get there. Before uh, the show started tonight, two, two last things, and then we're going to get into the list. Uh, before we started the show tonight, I was saying to my father, I said, you know, I read a lot of the, you know, we do this, we do this every week. We, we re review a movie and then we read the, what the rotten criticisms are. And, and well, we read the uh, criticisms that differ from the conclusion you and I have reached. <laughs> I well, admit, we, we're going to review one of these movies one time that we think is crap and everyone else loves or vice versa. And it's going to, that'll be a slightly different, but to the, to the, this far in the year, we've generally enjoyed the movies presented, and so when we read the rotten reviews, I wind up banging my head into the desk going, whoever wrote this is an idiot, and here's why. Well, okay, but, but to the point that I was trying to make is, the one thing we've noticed about a lot of criticism, professional criticism, people who do this for a living, they are paid to do it because they apparently have some sort of uh, marketable talent they're actually just giving personal opinion and passing it off as criticism. Very yeah. rarely do we read a review that looks at the craft of a movie, that objectively looks at a craft of a movie and measures it up against what is commonly believed to be good craft versus bad craft. And I pride, I don't want, not to pat ourselves on the back, but I pride Robert and I for most of the time sticking with the craft of things. Last night we reviewed Daredevil, and I listened back to it today, uh, the Daredevil season two on Netflix, and I thought we did a really excellent job of sticking with the craft of the movie and not getting bogged down into personal interest. And, and, and in the case that it does get brought up, it's acknowledged. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying I didn't like it, but it needed to be there. For example, I have all kinds of issues with Foggy Nelson in Daredevil, but that was a personal thing. He absolutely, the actor did a great job. The stuff he was doing needed to be done in the series, and it doesn't really matter at the end of the day that I wasn't a huge fan of it, but it still needed to be there and it needed to be acknowledged. Um, so with, with that being said, uh, let's get into, you know, we're, we're going to do something funny here. Uh, Hopefully people will enjoy see this. how many times I can give myself a concussion. So, the initial idea here was to find a summary of attacks against Man of Steel, and then Robert and I were going to refute them um, using our hard and fast logic. And I couldn't find a self-contained list of, ex of criticisms that was worth uh, deconstructing. I did find 75 things we hate about Man of Steel, and I had a good laugh at this. So I figured, what the hell? Let's end the podcast on kind of a fun note here. So here we go. All right? This is from the... For those of you playing along at home, write down the first five or so of these that he's about to read. I've seen this list. And then count how many times each one is repeated. <laughs> All right. So I'm actually going to read five at a time. All right. We'll and we'll, and we'll just sort of group them together and then, or we're going to be here all night. Um, 
Superman kills someone. He can I address this real? Br- Sorry, can I just address that real briefly? I feel like I did about an hour ago, but sure. I'm not entirely sure where this narrative of Superman never kills people comes from. It seems fabricated. It seems like, well, we're all just familiar with this version of Superman, and therefore that's the way it is and always has been and always will be, right? And it's it's a lot of it's some bleed over from Batman, I think, and I need to compare and contrast very briefly. Batman chooses not to kill people, not out of some how did the Joker not out of some misguided sense of self righteousness, not out of some moral imperative that life has that all life has value. That's not necessarily why he doesn't kill people. He doesn't kill people because Bruce is self-aware enough to know that if he does, he is never going to be able to come back from that. That's a line he can never uncross. And that speaks, that goes with the character, and it's a fine, I'm not criticizing that, but that's where that comes from with him. Superman will kill someone if it is the only available recourse, if it is the good and righteous thing to do. That's why he does it so infrequently. That's why he won't kill Lex Luthor or you know, any number of instances where he believes it is not the only recourse, so he won't do it. Superman has killed Zod multiple times. In the Donner films, in at least one major comic arc. And here, it, he kills Doomsday. It is not without precedent. It's simply something that most people are not aware of and clashes with their preconceived notion of the character. The only way to actually stop Zod in the end of Man of Steel is to kill him. The nice people who made the movie went so far as to state it explicitly in dialogue. (laughs) Just in case you missed it. General Zod actually says this only ends one one way. Either you're dead or I'm dead. Line and is spoken. Has, and then as he has him in a chokehold, by the way, he's saying, Zod, stop, never. As he's shooting lasers out of his eyes. Yes. Th- I liked that in the movie because it was not an action taken lightly. There was emotional consequence. There will be in the future. But this myth that Superman will never kill people... Please, pull your head out of the sand. It happens infrequently, and I understand why they don't portray it on television very often, because it clashes with the general audience. It is not a fabrication. It is not an affront to the essence of the character. He inadvertently causes the deaths of hundreds. Oh, wait, you mean a... Wait, wait, you mean a battle... Featuring, you know, super-powered gods is going to be collateral damage. Oh, heaven for offend. Oh, Jesus Christ. In what comic book uh, movie hasn't there been inadvertent uh, deaths of hundreds? Uh, was, and I believe Zack Snyder was actually uh, uh, in some publications that they talked about. And what about Star Wars? <laughs> and all the people dying in that, you know, pulling his hair out at this point. Uh, he willfully ignores the deaths of thousands. Yes, 
while while his uncle is uh, bearing down on him, trying to murder him in the street, he doesn't have time to worry about the you know the, the poor people of Metropolis who seem to have skipped town. By the way, by the time this fight happens, uh, yeah, it's it, if Superman were stopping a train from uh, going off the rails, yeah, he would probably have made sure no one got hurt. Stopping a plane from falling out of the sky, he catches all the debris. I'm fine. Fine. That's fine. That's in character. It's also possible given the situation he's placed in. Given a situation where he must fight someone whose powers are equal to his own, sorry, he does not have the ability to suddenly go faster and move you out of the way before he knocks Zod through a wall type thing. No, it's an irrational criticism. Number four, he doesn't walk old ladies across the street. Well, I don't remember him doing that in the Donner movies either. So, okay. He doesn't yeah. rescue... Number five, he doesn't rescue kittens from trees. That's true. He did do that in the Donner cut. <laughs> I don't know what you want from us. Uh, number, number six. Clark Kent is just another brooding existential loner with a beard. Absolutely untrue. While our hero wanders the world in mortal disguise, people call him Joe. Oh, wait, you mean he might want to hide his identity? <laughs> in the first of cliched bully scenes, a barroom groper dumps a beer on a saintly hunk's head. Have you people never actually been in a bar where something like that happens? I- I'm but sorry, that is not uncommon. Wait, I, what, what kills me about this is that there were a lot of similarities between um, both Donner movies and, and Man of Steel, including him being picked on in a bar. Yeah. The barroom bully doubles down, even though his first punch has no effect. Again. <laughs> the guy's slightly inebriated and a bit of a douchebag. Yeah, that's how they behave, people. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's no understanding of human psychology here. Uh, Clark, takes off, <laughs> Clark takes off-screen revenge against the barroom bully. Yes, as opposed to spitting him on a stool and throwing him into a pinball machine. Likely killing him. I actually think that's a slightly valid criticism in the sense that, you know, you just destroyed a lot of machinery there and uh, wrecked a fair amount of material that was being transported. I'm okay with it. I'll allow it. I'm not saying I'm not saying I disagree with him taking the action. I'm saying if you want to complain that, you know, Superman didn't just kind of take it on the chin and go punch a tree and instead exacted more personal vengeance, I will accept that in this instance you might have a bit of a point. He's not Superman yet, now is he? He's still trying to figure out. I'm also well aware of that. The rampant Christ imagery. Oh, for the love of... (laughs) You and I talked briefly about this off-air. Guys. Yeah, I I don't want to make fun of people who really feel like uh, religious iconography doesn't belong in a Superman movie, but you're missing the point that even the people have who can't Superman in DC have made, and that is there are similarities between the, the Christ and the son of uh, Krypton. It, that's been a thing since his original publication. If, I don't understand getting your... Uh, all right. I don't wish to... Uh, like Mark, I don't want to offend anyone who... Seems who thinks that you can divorce 
Superman from Christian icon from Christian iconography. I uh, if that's the way you feel about it, I am more than prepared to accept the fact that that's how you feel, and I respect that. A minor dose of reality. This character has been deliberately utilized within that allegory for longer than I've been alive. And dare I okay. say longer than you've been alive. This is nothing we new. Are, uh... Good. Just finish because I, cause we got, we're at the twerk 12 of 75 here. We kind of speed this up. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just, that's one of those things that like, I'm sorry, would you rather they tried to be more subtle about it and you could just go on feigning ignorance? That's kind of where I land on that. Like, this has always been there. Baby Kalel isn't conceived by the same means as other Krypton kids. I don't know why that would be offensive or why someone would, would hate that, but sure. Baby Kalel's junk has a heavenly glow Why staring at the baby's junk. Baby Kalel doesn't need space diapers. All ba- hang on. Baby Kalel's heavenly glow around his junk is actually the codex being bonded to him. It is explained. It is not simply a random lens flare like you get from Abrams. <laughs> Lack of diapers given the length traveled, I will give you. This council is disbanded on whose authority? Mine. All right. Rachel Pura's not tell scientist jor we're not so different, you and I. That's a common villain thing. Yeah, uh, villains try to identify with good people as a means of self-justification. Uh, 17 dragons. Will you tell me what's supposed to be on Krypton? Because I don't know. The yeah, leader of not Krypton, valid. <laughs> the leader of Krypton sentences traitors uh, to 300 cycles of somatic reconditioning. Yes. That's why they're called correctional institutions uh, nowadays and not prisons. Now, if your argument there is, well, they should have just killed him at that point, I agree with you, but that's not necessarily them acting irrationally, given what you know about that world. And we all know this is 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 the supreme leader of our military. You know, if we can brainwash him back into doing what we say, we'd still like him around. The leader of Krypton wears bling that looks like a school like glass lanyard. Wow, that's uh, a story. I will. No, I'll give you that. the uh, The costume design for that High Council on Krypton was uh, uninspired. Yeah, as opposed to what you see in the Donner Cut, which is everyone wearing a white jumpsuit, like they're at, uh, you know, like they're at the opening of a mall first thing in the morning to walk around it. A school mom, <laughs> a school mom who's never heard of Indians asks. Who first settled Kansas? Um, oh, that's, that's... No, wait a minute. You have decided to... No, that's not a valid criticism. You're in your own state. He's re- being raised in Kansas. That's a valid thing that... Yeah, look, I don't want to get into Indian relations versus the United States government. That's a whole other thing. This is clearly an, is- an instance of you as the listener deciding this is where you're going to take up arms on this issue. It's not valid. I got asked that I grew up in Utah for the purposes of my primary education. It was a valid, a, a chunk of that was also in Oregon. That got asked. So, uh, 21. Yeah, Clark. keep going. <laughs> I gotta cut you off. 
Uh, 21, Clark requires super hearing in an instant instead of growing up accustomed to it. Well, huh, it's almost like his body matured. A school bus believed the man to know what dick splash Clark thought of the game. Why do people that? never... Hold on, hold on. <laughs> Guys, if that's a... That is not a criticism. I rode the bus to school pretty much every day for the entirety of... Again, my primary education. Stuff like that gets said. Frequently. I'm sorry, if that offends you as a person, fine, by all means. Don't like the fact that kids use language like that, but they do. The school bus bully has memorably red hair so we can track his redemption. Oh, why would would your characters want to be visually memorable? Inquisitive Clark with X-ray vision never finds the crashed spaceship in his family's barn. Uh, that's fair. Feckless Pot Kent doesn't say a word to the jocks who are bullying his son. Oh, it sounds like 13 or 14 in that scene. I'm pr- <laughs> he's I'm more pr- of a teenager, and as soon as they all realize he's back, it's, that's more like a moment of mutual realization. Like, he looks over at kids picking on his son. They look up and see, oh, crap, it's Kevin Costner. He might make a star on Waterworld 2, and they all leave. <laughs> the faceless extras on a Kansas highway endured the longest tornado in history. How is that the longest tornado in history? That is not Young the longest tornado in history. You have no experience with, meteorolo- with meteorological phenomena like that. Plenty of tornadoes have lasted a lot longer than that. Granted, there are some shorter as well. But frequently they will go on longer. You are not qualified to make that claim in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Young Superman is not smart enough to save Pa Kent without blowing his cover. Well, no, you know, people are watching. Uh, like, uh, I'm so, look, I will, I will acknowledge the decision they made to kill off Jonathan Kent the way they did was not the best decision. I will acknowledge that. I will agree with you if that's a major complaint you have. I'm sorry, how exactly is he supposed to avoid speeding faster than is humanly possible in front of all those witnesses? Again, now you're a person who's grown up his entire life saying, for God's sake, stay in the shadows, don't make a spectacle of yourself, and, oh, by the way, there's a tornado bearing down on you, and you're not used to using your powers because you're not supposed to be using them. It's entirely possible he froze, and he really didn't know what to do. What's he supposed to say? Hell, look, there's, you know, 40 people under this overpass. Look over there. And expect (laughs) everyone to turn away from the tornado bearing down on them? Hey, is that Shaka Khan? What? Landlocked Clark Clark Kent grows up to work as a fisherman. Oh, shut up. (laughs) Wow, because it's... No, what he does on that boat does not require him to be the most nautical of people. Invalid criticism. Clark's faith is tested when he is 33 years old. Why is it... That that makes no sense. Makes no sense at all. Our hero's nemesis is a general with a Roman Empire haircut. Why is this a criticism? They went with a deliberate artistic choice to have the character remind you of imperialistic military. Because, hey, he's a military imperialist. Okay, you you got to let me address this. Kalel's dead right. father continues to advise him as an interactive computer program. Uh, bitches, that's right out of the Donner movies. Okay, Especially if you've ever seen the director's cut... There's a, like a 10-minute Pink Floyd sequence uh, where 
where Marlon Brando is talking to Kalel from the grave and like instructing him in science. Seriously, watch it. If you're into if you're into doing drugs, smoke pot when you do because it's trippy as shit. But yeah, uh, both Lara and Mar- and uh, Jarrell speak to him from the grave the exact same way. They took. I mean, they're not guiding him around a ship or anything. It's stationary, but the exact same freaking thing happens. So that. Yeah, not valid. If the, if you're not going to complain about it in the Donner movies, you can't complain about it here. Someone worked really hard on Krypton history slideshow that Kalel takes for granted. All right. <laughs> After a lecture about sacrifice, Kalel drifts away from his cyber father. And, and now we're the- repeating where I don't like Christian iconography in my movie. Clark Kent reveals his secret identity to a clergyman against a backdrop of stained glass. Here we go again. Clark Kent willingly reveals his secret identity to Lois Lane. Untrue. Yes. yes. Well, not only, but, but here's the thing. In the Donner movies... Uh, Clark instantly falls in love with Lois, too. He's barely laid eyes on this woman who hasn't paid a single moment of attention to him because she's too busy trying to figure out how to, how to spell words. And he instantly falls in love with her. I mean, he spent, the Clark Kent in, in, the, in Superman the movie spends 90% of his time as Clark Kent sniffing Lois's butt. It's, it's almost irritating. It, uh, it is. Also, for those of you who weren't paying attention to the actual movie... Lois goes through and discovers who he is on her own. He does not inform her. She you know, does pre- actual reporting and investigative journalism. The Army's press liaison hates the Daily Planet but respects Lois because she was embedded. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Why in the world would he have two different points of view? It's almost like he's a human being. <laughs> Lois Lane does not use a pen, laptop, or voice recorder but takes her own photos. Uh, See, relatively she, fair. I think she, I thought she had a laptop, but um, <clears throat> if we're done measuring dicks, Colonel, show me the anomalous object. Okay. Why? That's a brief. That's a line that I don't understand. Got the criticism that it did. It, I. This is another instance of I don't like Lois Lane being anything other than she was in the movies that I knew from my childhood and have rose-colored glasses for. Lois Lane has some balls. But Lois Lane had balls in the Donner movie. She just didn't curse because those weren't... They just didn't curse in those movies. Yeah, no. In this instance, no. That is exactly what that character would do under those circumstances. It's, again, not a valid criticism other than, wow, you're offending my childhood. 39. What if I have to tinkle? I'm a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter. Two weeks, two weeks leave without pay. Make that three. Okay, <laughs> some of the dialogue especially like between her and Perry is not the greatest stuff ever committed to film. Perry White wears an earring, but dresses like a stockbroker. Oh, shut up. (laughs) Not valid. This sleazy tabloid reporter who breaks the story is called Woodburn. (laughs) When Lois Lane boards a spaceship, she doesn't act like it's a mind blowing big deal. She was also in the hands of the enemy and probably trying not to lose her curl. Cool. By the way, wasn't she also an embedded reporter? These people are not prone to freakouts. Yeah. The spaceships are bulbous and ugly. All right. The space Fair. uniform. <laughs> the space uniforms are quilted and ugly with superfluous spiky epaulets. Opulence. I will disagree with that. Spikes on military armor to the degree that they exist on in these armors 
serve a very functional purpose of preventing the enemy from being able to grab you if they get in close. You are just whiny because you like things smooth and shiny. Delivered helmet on Zod's soul just turned transparent for no good reason. In his global broadcast hack, Zod speaks the languages of important movie markets. Oh, it's almost like he broadcast that message to the entire planet and wanted it to be able to be heard and understood by everyone in every corner of the planet. If you want to whine that, well, they make a specific it, they specifically go through the major markets because they're trying to pander, then fine, it's a tad pandering. It's still not a valid complaint. Zod's message does not provide contact info for Earthlings to report their local weirdos. <laughs> No, like he has, you know, faith that we're an organized society to one degree or another at that point. Yeah, I guess we'll figure it out, right? Um, he'll, he'll, just tie, he'll just tie up Kalel, leave him in a chair with a sign that says, for Zod. Uh, Zod demand to, demands to know from a Kansas window, where is the codex? Yeah, that we was... Hours, we wait two hours for an appearance by mild-mannered reporter Clark Kent. Did well, we no mention kidding! This this is the journey. He does not become a reporter until the end of the freaking movie. Ugh. This we is again, you want it. I want it to be like it was in my childhood. We wait two hours for anyone to crack a joke or a smile. Oh, that's not true at all. That is yeah, no fundamentally difference. that's untrue. B, wah, I want my. I want it to be this way, and it's not. There's if you're no complaining. Well, there hey, Jimmy Olsen. If you like Jimmy Olsen, go watch Supergirl. Call Black Jimmy Olsen for you. There's, there's no Jenny Olsen in this one. Yeah. There's no clothes changing scenes, but we get a gratuitous shirtless one. His shirt uh, got burned off in a fire. <laughs> no red shorts. No yellow belt. No yellow in the logo of it. yellow in the uh, logo of the color of urine. The I am for Superman. Okay. Why would he call a- a, I am whining about the costume changes because I want it to be like it was in my childhood. See, previous statement about not a valid criticism. And, oh, the S doesn't stand for Superman. No, it's almost like he was born an alien with a different culture that have different symbols that mean something different. Wow. Who cares how he shaves? He d- how does he go to the bathroom? What? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry for anyone listening to this who's just like, why are they doing this? This is cracking me up. I think he's hilarious. Look, there's always been kind of a joke that people who don't ha- who do not have the interest in the character to actually find out the answer to this. There's the joke of how does Superman shave? Because his he's supposed to be indestructible from head to toe, and that includes his hair, so how does he shave? Never mind, that's actually been explained in the past. I, I don't understand the... How does he go to the bathroom? Well, I imagine unless there's a massive anatomical difference that we're unaware of, rather similarly to you or me. If your complaint is, well, he's in a unitard, well... Not like it's, you know... It's not like he's lacking the opening physiologically. I mean, sure, it's probably more of a pain to do if you have to get the whole suit off, but really, who cares? All right. Uh, there is no distinctive Metropolis landmark signs or storefronts. There are product placements everywhere, including the middle of Armageddon. Look, not for nothing, but this is how movies get made. Get over it. Okay. I don't, I don't know what to Look, tell you. If you complain about that, and I'll go ahead and grant you, 
there are a couple of instances in this movie of, well, we got to make sure and get that in the background. There's a there's a prominent. I'm going to stop you there. Walk uh, uh, any main street in America now has chain stores everywhere. I don't want to hear it. They're no, everywhere. no, I agree with you. You can't escape this anymore. This isn't 1977. And more importantly, this isn't like the most recent Transformers movie where we're going to go into an extraordinarily prolonged slow motion sequence so you can all get a good look at the Victoria's Secret ad on the back of this bus we're about to destroy and then have Mark Wahlberg <laughs> shout at a random cabbie for five minutes about the merits of Pepsi. This is not that bad. In lieu of a Kraken, release the world machine. They're terraforming. A knife-wielding space babe tells an American soldier a good death is its own reward. As though Makes warrior sense. culture wouldn't have some similarities to our own. Yeah, the Klingons were good for that all the time on uh, yeah. Star Trek. Superman not a criticism. Superman is not smart enough to stop Zod without also leaving Metropolis. Uh, without also leveling Metropolis. Again, well, godlike beings hitting each other in the face... But what would you rather he do? Say, you know, Zod, uh, there's this big open canyon, you know, about 40 miles behind us. We can probably fly there in under two minutes. Would you rather do this there? No, I'm a genocidal maniac. Why in the world would I want to remove a tactical advantage I have in being able to threaten civilians? Stupid. The sprawling city of Metropolis doesn't seem to have any firefighters, cops, or good Samaritans. I will uh, give you there's a distinct lack of first responders present in this movie. The world machine leveled everything within, like, miles of it, people. I keep saying, I'm pretty sure by the time we got to uh, Superman and Zod having a go at it, most people were gone from the scene. Or Anyone with a brain. The now, I, I don't know what people expected in a situation where everything around for, let's say, 20 miles was being turned to ash. Superman and Lois share a lingering kiss while thousands are presumably talking in the rubble. See previous statement. During and after the destruction of Metropolis, we don't see a single injured citizen. See previous statement. They say after the first kiss, it's all downhill. Oh, shut up. The 3D is lousy. Not the, not the greatest bit of written dialogue ever committed to film, but not the worst by a long stretch. Uh, the music, the 3D is lousy. The music is bombastic. True. There is no I romantic give you bad 3D. It's Superman. Why are you complaining about... You're going to complain about bombastic music in a Superman movie? Come on. There's no romantic chemistry between Lois Lane and Superman. Eh, that's debatable. Amy it's debatable, Adams, Michael- but I will also accept that. I will also refute it on a couple of points, but... Amy Adams, Michael Shannon, Diane Lane, and Kevin Costner got dragged into this mess. Oh, Kevin Costner's made so many worse movies. Waterworld. Really? For- Waterworld, The Postman. Yeah. Oh, uh, Kevin Costner is not in Three Days at all. to Kill. <laughs> Henry, Cavill, go the- Henry Cavill wasn't cast for his acting skills. So that's just mean. Well, and finally. A, he was, because he does a good job with believable emotion. Granted, it's more in the extremes and the subtleties, but that's what we're asked for in this movie. And you know what? If and I don't really care. Fine. The guy goes without a shirt for a brief period of time. So what? 75. Director Zack Snyder is a visually unimaginative, morally bankrupt hack who doesn't know a thing about humans. No, you've confused Zack Snyder with George Lucas. 
and Michael Bay. All right. Uh, so that, folks, ends our In Defense of Man of Steel podcast. Real briefly, Zack Snyder has plenty of flaws to his films. Uh, He's made some well, good ones. He is not maybe we're really not done yet. Uh, sorry, go sorry, ahead. Just, I just, again, Zack Snyder is not that bad, especially when compared to you know George Lucas left to his own devices or Michael Bay because no one cares. Can I end the show now? Yes. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to our In Defense of Man of Steel podcast. If, I, if somehow you, we have inadvertently insulted you, uh, we apologize. Wasn't re- really went out of my way to not be abrasive this time as I was with uh, some, some of the earlier podcasts that we've done of the same vein. Um, more trying to, you know, win people with honey than vinegar here. But uh, if, if we failed in that respect, I apologize. Uh, but, uh, you know, we tried. All right, so for Mr. Winfrey, I am your mandated reporter, Mr. Rattledge. Be well, be safe, and behave.